Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Joining us today is Scott Linsicum. He's a senior fellow in economic studies at the Cato Institute. And we're going to discuss his new study on deindustrialization, free markets, and national security. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Aaron, you forgot chief neoliberal shill. That's, yeah. that's the most important title that he has. That's right. For at least a few more weeks. The, I know the tournament is coming up, and I uh, I doubt I will win again. You can't defend your title? Okay. Well, 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 I'll vote for you. So, Well, thank you. What is security nationalism? <laughs> sure. So security nationalism is – I mean, it's been around for a long time, but it's really become prominent. Uh, it became prominent in kind of the latter parts of the Trump administration and, and now. And it's essentially the idea that decades of free markets and government inattention have uh, caused widespread deindustrialization in the United States – and by extension, have weakened our national security and thus require really broad-based government protectionism and industrial policy, subsidies and the rest, uh, to restore and bolster national security. As you point out in the paper, even for free trade people, which we are, we can get into just the general case of free trade, but that it, that can be a more compelling reason to limit trade, right? If I mean, uh, if we went into World War II and all of our tanks were being made in Germany uh, in 1940, that could have been a problem, uh, it, it, right? And so if Germany just said, "Hey, no more tanks," we're taking the tanks for us. So it, it's not on its face absurd. Uh, no, definitely not. And in fact, look, you know, the kind of OG free traders, Adam Smith. Uh, Milton Friedman and others acknowledge that there is an, uh, an exception um, for our kind of general free trade and free market principles when it comes to national security. Like you said, um, you know, if in times of war or other uh, national emergency, um, there may be a need for um, the industrial capacity, we'll call it, just the ability to make stuff, particularly, like you said, tanks, planes, and the rest. Um, the problem with the that, that theoretical exception is it, how it's applied in practice, particularly, again, kind of in the security nationalism context. Because what, what started out, I mean, if you look at, again, Adam Smith, Milton Friedman and others, you, you see that these guys also were very quick to note that these uh, national security exceptions are narrow and they really should be applied um, in limited circumstances. And we should be very skeptical of the application of these exceptions. And then when you go to in practice, um, you see that uh, there are all sorts of, they run into a lot of real world issues. Um, and so security nationalism ignores all of that. You listen to guys like Marco Rubio or, you know, of course, President Trump, but also guys on the left too. President Biden has, has made these types of rumblings as well. And they are not applying a Friedman-esque national security exception to a general free trade principle. It's actually much the opposite. It's an assumption that we must have, uh, reshored supply chains. We must have tons of economic nationalism and that free trade is the exception to the rule. And they really, so they really flip it on its head. But it does seem like if we're worried about the security of the nation, so we want the nation to be protected from whatever kinds of threats might come along, autarky, 
you know, economic self-sufficiency is going to be more secure because if we are dependent on other people, then we are dependent on other people. And if they change their mind, they do something. So doesn't it just, isn't it just simply the case that if we can make ourselves self-sufficient, that's better? Yeah. So there's two problems with that. Yeah, it does make some intuitive sense, right? Um, you know, during the, when the pandemic started, um, you know, we bought a bunch of toilet paper, had a bunch of stockpiled stuff. You know, you think, yeah, you need to have, you know, if you think of the, your nation as a house or whatever, you know, you need to have that, that supply. Um, but it runs into, like I said, two problems. First is that, what is the point of national security? Well, national security is to prevent wars and armed conflicts or to be able to respond to them at least. Um, and there's a ton of great academic literature, uh, looking at hundred plus years of, uh, of armed conflicts and wars and the rest. And they see that trade openness and free trade, global integration actually, uh, dramatically reduces the chance of armed conflict. So, and in, in other words, trade promotes peace. So if, if again, since your national security goal is to prevent war, to prevent attack, well, there's actually a lot of good evidence that shows that, that free trade and trade openness actually help you achieve that. And importantly, the literature shows it's not just simply about, uh, preventing, uh, keeping you out of wars, but it's actually keeping others out of wars too. If you can bring nations into what we'd call kind of the liberal trading order, you know, the World Trade Organization and the rest, uh, there's, that will reduce the chance of them, uh, countries attacking each other or them, uh, attacking you. So that's all good. Um, the second issue is, I think, just more economic. And that is that while autarky might uh, reduce the risk of an external shock. So for example, let's say a pandemic hits a major supplier of, uh, cars, for example. Yes, um, that might actually hurt your supply of cars or auto parts if you're making cars here. So you would import that shock, but that doesn't consider the, what happens when a, sh a pandemic hits your country, um, or any other sort of domestic shock, a natural disaster, um, potential civil war armed conflict in your own country, those types of things. And what the economics literature shows is uh, trade openness, global trade integration, and the rest actually help nations uh, absorb and withstand domestic shocks. So we see this in the United States, for example, when the pandemic was raging here and other countries were recovering um, sectors that were relatively open to global trade actually were performing much better than sectors that were closed. Even in specific products, we saw this happen. For example, um, in cars, we have very low tariffs on cars. We have very high tariffs, 25% tariffs on trucks. And we had outright truck shortages this summer um, because we had a, a kind of domestic, most of our trucks are made here with, with a few exceptions. Um, by contrast, because we have these low tariffs on cars, we had tons of import supplies. So there was far less disruption um, when it came to uh, the ability to consume for consumers to access those things. But the other thing that that trade openness does is it helps you recover from a, a domestic or an external shock. And again, that's by diversifying supplies, um, creating a, a larger, not just supplier base, but consumer base. You can export and, and, uh, 
of course, you know, drive revenue and, and recovery that way as well. Does this mean then that we should have Germany or say China manufacture our tanks? Yeah, I think there is a line, right? That, I mean, you know, I know that, that some, uh, folks would say it doesn't matter. Um, we should, it doesn't matter that we have, uh, you know uh, it, whether we have an industrial base or not. I, in my opinion, I think that goes uh, goes too far because, um, like you said, there are hostile nations in the world. There are nations that we that that could, for example, impose export restrictions in the re- or or other actions that could you know really cause serious problems in times of national emergency or or war or the rest. But it really is important to dig into the data and, and examine um, what is actually happening here in the United States. I mean, I do that in a large part of the paper, looking at our actual industrial capacity. Um, and so, for example, the United States is still the second largest manufacturing nation in the world. We have probably the most productive manufacturing workforce in the world in terms of, you know, value added output per worker. Um, we're a top recipient of foreign direct investment in the manufacturing sector. Um, and then you look at historical trends for the last 20 plus years and you see that American manufacturers are still investing heavily in research and development and capital expenditures. You see that uh, output overall is up a little. It's up a lot in the durable goods sector. These are, kind of, again, tanks, planes, cars, uh, electronics, those things that we we typically associate with national security. Um, and that the, the declines, by contrast, in our manufacturing sector tend to be these kind of low-wage, low-value sectors, uh, textiles and apparel, for furniture and the rest, or uh, they are dematerialized sectors. So simply things that we don't use as much anymore, either due, due to changing consumer tastes. So for example, tobacco manufacturing is way down um, or because simply um, technological advancement. So, um, you know, we just aren't using as much stuff overall in terms of kind of raw weight production of things like metals and wood and the rest. I mean, you look at, you know, a smartphone, for example, um, that has taken, you know, that's replaced dozens of different devices and it keeps getting smaller and thinner and lighter over time. And so those things you also need to take into account when you look at at the manufacturing sector. Um, so, so it's important again, you know, it is, I think, a good theoretical concern. You probably don't want all of your tanks and planes made in China. In reality, that's just not happening. And we have a ton of industrial capacity. Uh, but the other thing that's really important, I think, to note is that um, that is not an excuse for autarky. Um, it's again, more about diversity of supply, um, having domestic and uh, foreign production and allowing, you know, the kind of good old comparative advantage and supply chains to do their magic um, in a lot of uh, cases. You know, we have this thing called the National Technology and Industrial Base, the NTIB. And it's a pretty smart idea. Essentially, it is designed to allow really close allies. Right now, it includes Canada, uh, the United Kingdom, and Australia, and the United States. And it allows these very close allies to pool resources, industrial resources, R&D capabilities, and the rest, for specifically for national defense 
reasons. Um, I think the unfortunate side of the NTIB is that it's just simply not used enough. There are big exceptions and buy American rules and the rest that kind of gum it up. And I don't think it's big enough. Um, there, we should have, I think, more countries. We have a lot more allies than just the ones I named. Um, and they should be in, 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 in the NTIB as well. Um, and the bright side is the National Defense Authorization Act just this year calls for the NTIB to be expanded. So there is a little glimmer of hope. You know, I mentioned this rising security nationalism while buried in the NDAA is a little hope that, that we're not, that our policymakers are not all preaching, you know, autarky as the, the new default. I'd like to take a step back because you were thinking about national security justifications for limiting trade uh, or or taxing trade or tariffs, you, it's hard to even define what that would mean. It, it could that that little kind of get out clause could consume the entire right. What is that? I mean, think of everything we produced in World War II, from clothing to obviously we have tanks, but why isn't clothing national security? Like all these things. But if we take a step back and we say, okay, let's look at this differently, um, and so the thing that is often mentioned in trade and brought up in this sort of competitive environment is trade deficits. So so we if we have a deficit to China, then China's kicking our butts. Right? Like so can, let's let what is what is that thinking and what's wrong with that general thinking? If we could pick apart the, the national security aspects of it. Well yeah, I mean the the most basically the trade deficit is not really a sign of industrial health, economic health or really anything else. Um, it's, it's really just about overall uh, global kind of savings and investment flows. So this is kind of macroeconomic things that have nothing to do with tariff or trade policy. Um, it, so, you know, the trade deficit can basically tell you, um, you know, what companies are saving more than they're investing and consuming and what countries are doing the opposite. The United States falls into the opposite for a, a lot of reasons. Um, but it doesn't, uh, again, tell you much about how healthy your manufacturing sector is, um, or, or anything like that. Uh, the other issue, uh, is that it ignores, and I think this is a real big problem with security nationalism. It, it ignores global supply chains. And, and what I mean by that is that, um, you can have a robust manufacturing base. Um, and you can have a bunch of thriving manufacturers in these very uh, high-skill defense industries, you know, aerospace, for example, um, and still import a lot of stuff because of the, the supply chains, right? You're going to have production specialization all over the world, and that's none of that is going to really show up in in a trade balance. In fact, it could show that you're quote unquote losing in in trade and your trade balance. You're running a trade deficit, even though uh, you have a really strong um, uh, manufacturing sector, and because it's just simply incorporated into the supply chain, and we are importing you know certain parts or certain uh, products and then using them domestically instead of, again, exporting those things. Um, and then finally, bilateral trade balances really tell you almost nothing. Um, and that's first because they don't consider at all that value-added production. It, this is just gross um, uh, trade, it's just gross values. And what I mean, for example, um, I think a good example is the iPhone. So the iPhone comes from 
uh, China, or at least it used to come from China. And that would register as a deficit with China of, of 200, let's say $200. Um, and you'd think, oh, wow, we're losing to China $200. Well, the problem with that is that the iPhone actually contains parts from all over the world. It t- contains a ton of value added from the United States and, and not just research and development and all of that kind of good stuff, but um, some manufacturer parts, chips and whatever. And then it just sent to China to be assembled. Um, and studies showed that the, that Chinese manufacturers were deriving something like 10 bucks of that 200, um, in actual value add in, in China. Not to mention the fact that when the iPhone's finally here, um, it's then sold for, let's say $400 or whatever. Um, and that, those, that, all of that money goes to Apple's employees and its shareholders and Apple Store and the rest. And all of that, again, kind of boosts the economy. So, so none of that is considered in a bilateral trade balance. And, and the other problem is that bilateral trade balances kind of assume that no other countries exist. I mean, you can run a massive trade deficit with one country and then run trade surpluses with every other country, right? And again, it's really not telling you much about um, the actual, you know, trade situation or, you know, the overall trade balance. So it's really, I, I think it's unfortunate that politicians, Trump and others, um, use that as a as a metric for for really judging anything related to trade policy. It seems like whenever we do an episode on either trade issues or innovation issues, the iPhone comes up a lot for obvious reasons. It's like the go-to example. But I wonder oh, so if – Also, it's way more than $400, Scott. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I was just like – it made me think of like – it's like what is that question where they ask politicians if they know how much milk costs? It's like, does Scott know how much an iPhone costs? Well, first, I haven't actually upgraded my phone in a few years. Okay, and okay. And I'm okay. an Android guy. Um, and it's all distorted by those – you know cell phone plans and the rest. So I, okay. I, yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> but I guess I'm wondering if the iPhone in particular potentially bolsters the case for security nationalism or um, in the sense that we are we are wildly dependent on these technological devices and and as you said they're like they're they're constant aggregators of activity so all kinds of things that used to be spread across multiple devices and mediums have been moved on to these little devices that are being largely manufactured in places like china or perhaps vietnam or india where their interests might not align with ours or might run directly counter to ours, like the government, the government's interests. And is there a worry, you know, it's one thing to say, like, we shouldn't manufacture our, our weapons of war should be manufactured at home. So they can't be cut off because like in the acute situation of an armed conflict, we want access to enough of this stuff. But is there a worry that these global supply chains are basically integrating technology from places like China so deeply into our lives, our security systems and so on, and that these things might be, you know, there's there's a danger there. Like all of our iPhone chips might contain rogue Chinese AIs that at the flip of a switch are going to, you know, take over or something like that, or the 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 questions about 5G towers being manufactured. Like that that we can't necessarily see the problem until just like it's way too late. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there is, you, you know, a theoretical concern, um, about that type of action. And I think that China is a, a really unique 
situation, given kind of, you know, of course, the, the government's uh, behavior and uh, its influence and interaction with, with industry there. Um, the, the question I think we have to ask is, well, first, um, can we do, can government do much effectively about it? Um, and I think that, you know, if you look at my paper, um, you know, in the section on kind of the security nationalism in practice, um, what you see is that uh, government over the last 30 plus years has has actually been pretty bad when it comes to implementing security nationalist policies. Um, either they are overbroad in the case of, for example, steel tariffs, um, or they're ineffective in the case of the Jones Act, um, or they're subject to all sorts of lobbying and cronyism and the rest in the case of well, all of them. Um, or even in the security space, for example, in semiconductors, um, we ended up picking the wrong products. We ended up picking the wrong chips to protect. Um, and uh, these, the consortium we produced or we created, uh, this public-private partnership cost, called Semitech, really just ended up not doing much in terms of advancing the ball um, and, and improving uh, domestic semiconductor capabilities and R&D collaboration and the rest. Um, and so, you know, I think the, the, the first problem with that is, is can government policy, particularly a policy that fosters, you know, autarky or reshoring, whatever you want to call it, actually improve on the outcome? And I think there's a lot of question there. Um, the other problem is that what will be the economic impact? Let's, let's just assume maybe they can be successful. And, you know, I think the iPhone is a, a good example because, um, look, if we had had a policy of, of making all of our smartphones domestically, there's a chance we might not even ever have smartphones because the price point, particularly in the early years of the iPhone would have been so high that it might not have, you might not have had consumers adopting the technology and it would have just simply gone by the wayside. Um, and those, so, so not only can that discourage innovation, but it can, again, discourage, uh, adoption and, and use of these kind of great technologies. And of course, it just imposes substantial costs on the U.S. economy, on American manufacturers, when you talk about industrial inputs. And all of that decreases our productive capacity and decreases our ability to, um, to withstand shocks you know, have industrial capacity in times of war, all of those types of things. So, you know, certainly I think there's a role um, in, in the security space for, you know, in, whether it's policing industrial espionage or, uh, you know, dealing with these types of, you know, like you said, you know, uh, uh, malware or whatever that's in these products. But we, I think we really need to separate that kind of what you'd call a scalpel approach to trade, tech policy, and the rest to security nationalism, which is not a scalpel approach at all. It is really this kind of default position that we need everything reshored unless there's a reason, uh, a, a, a good justification for it not being made domestically. Back on the point when I was mentioned that just thinking here, the, the way that Trump and, and as Bernie and I mean, uh, free trade is not very popular generally, but the way they talk about it with China and it could be other countries that like security nationalism is, is not just individual things that could be used for uh, war 
purposes, but even the wealth of China, right? So we, so the idea that we made China into a dangerous country by just sleeping while they built up their sector and didn't care about everything they did. So we, we grant that they, they have some underhanded tactics, especially when it comes to industrial espionage. But I mean, you know, on this general principle that I, you know, Bernie and Trump would totally agree on that why wouldn't we want to pay $200 more for an iPhone so Americans in Ohio can have a job while not bolstering China, China into a superpower that one day, who, you know, one day could be someone who really wants to go toe to toe with us on maybe something like the South China Sea or Taiwan, that we just let that happen while depriving Americans of jobs. I mean, that's, that's national security concern, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, a host of, of problems with, with that, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, now we're going back actually to my previous paper on, on China's growth and on U.S. engagement with China. But first thing is, I think it's really important to note that China was going to rise with or without the United States. And certainly, you know, U.S. Uh, trade with China, um, helped uh, I think, you know, it provided financial benefits for certain companies and, and the rest. But the, the reality is if you look at the trajectory of China's economy, and if you look at why China actually became an economic power, uh, it has much less to do with the United States than, than Trump or Bernie or others, uh, claim in, in the, arguments you just made. Um, and, you know, that's kind of typical American um, uh, egotism, right? We think that we we did, you know, we are responsible for both the good and the bad in the world, right? But the if you look at the various analyses, you see that, look, um, the vast majority of China's growth and China's wealth came from its own domestic internal reforms, um, came from, uh, of course, you know, privatization and property rights and the rest, but also a lot of trade liberalization. China undertook a lot of trade liberalization. Um, and, and so those reforms, much less the United States you know, opening up its market more through, for example, permanent normal, normal trade relations are what drove uh, China's impressive growth over the years. So that's the first problem. Uh, the second is the counterfactual. Well, what would China be if it had not integrated into the global economy? Would we be safer with a, say, rogue, isolated nation, um, more like North Korea, but with over a billion people? Um, and that I think raises all sorts of, uh, significant security issues. And I think, as I argued in that paper, it really, when you start to think about isolating a rogue nuclear power with over a billion people and the potential security implications of doing that, um, you see, I think quite quickly that the decision to kind of admit China into the world trade organization to bring China into the fold, so to speak, into the liberal trading order, um, was pretty pragmatic and, and regardless of whether China ever became a liberal democracy or the rest. I mean, it really was the best, uh, available option given the, given the realistic alternatives. And, you know, it's important to note that back then China was actually liberalizing. Um, this was not Xi Jinping's uh, China. It was Zhu Rongji's China. Uh, it was a very different place, at least on the, you know, on, on the outside. Um, but 
let me just go one other thing before you uh, get, keep going. The other issue, though, is is those manufacturing jobs in Ohio, right? Um, the the missed assumption there is that um, there would that first of all those would be really good jobs. Uh, the fact is that the jobs, for the most part, that we offshored in the 1990s and 2000s were low wage, low skill jobs. Um, assembling an iPhone still is not a really good, high paying job. It is not something that's going to be um, uh, a a great living in in 2021. Um, but the other thing is that you, by raising the price of these goods, you reduce demand for the goods. So you would have a smaller Apple, you would have a smaller industry overall. Um, and again, none of that is good for innovation, for even in the national security sense. I mean, do we want Apple to have become, say, a German company or something like that? Isn't it better? I would think it is to have Apple still be a, a you know, at least headquartered in America. The case for the positive benefits of free trade is, we'll call it pretty strong. Um, and, and the effects of free trade are fairly clear. The wealth that it has brought to not just this country, but to the world in general over the last 100, 200 years is extraordinary. So given all of that, why are so many people opposed to free trade? We talked about like Trump and then, but it's, it's bipartisan. The Bernie Sanders progressive wing doesn't like it. Lots of Americans are at best ambivalent about it. Like, why is this such a hard case to make? Right. And the, it's a classic public choice issue, you know, that you have trade provides these very, or protectionism, I should say, provides these very concentrated benefits and very diffuse costs. Um, and then by contrast, free trade is the opposite. So when you, when you liberalize trade, um, you are going to there will be some very concentrated harms, so lost jobs uh, due to new import competition, um, closed factories and the rest. These things we see, they're very concentrated and clear. By contrast, the benefits are – they tend to be smaller and more diffuse. Um, and they tend to be described in, I think, really bad terms, in terms of cheap T-shirts, cheap consumer goods. I mean, look, I just did it here. I talked about iPhones, right? Um, the reality is that, you know, the benefits of trade go way beyond just cheap consumer goods. Um, whether it's providing, uh, you know, uh, alternative sources for, you know, again, withstanding global pandemics, whether it's creating a knowledge base that is, you know, beyond our borders. Um, you look at the vaccines, for example, and COVID vaccines, you know, that is just this incredible global collaboration, whether it's the Moderna vaccine or the Pfizer vaccine, which of course, Pfizer partnered with a German company. The German company was founded by a Turkish immigrant. I mean, you could do this all day. Um, and that type of global collaboration, knowledge, um, is just it, it, the benefits are, are immeasurable, but you don't see them, right? I mean, you know, unless you're reading my newsletter or whatever, um, you're not going to, we don't think about these on a daily basis. And politicians, unfortunately, are going to focus on the concentrated harms because the folks that are potentially subject to those 
harms are the ones that are going to be lobbying to pre- prevent them. Um, they ha- they stand the most to lose, and and you know thus the kind of um, the it makes perfect sense to expend the effort to block any sort of uh, liberalization. So so that's just a classic again classic kind of public choice issue. Politicians are self interested; they want to get reelected, they want campaign donations. So of course they're going to pay more attention to the people who are actually paying attention, um, and also. They're going to pay more attention to the people who will vote on this issue. Um, the fact is that trade in the United States is actually quite popular. But I, like you said, most people are ambivalent. Um, and they tend to just kind of go with the flow, depending on what the economy is doing, what political leaders say. But sure, there's a really strong um, and opinionated minority that really does care and really will vote on this issue. So politicians are going to cater to that. And then I think the last issue is that, and I think this is a big mistake from kind of the free trade side, is that free trade has become synonymous with trade agreements. And that like NAFTA or the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the rest. And that puts, first of all, a big political target for demagoguery, right? Trump, Obama did the same thing. Um, they can campaign against NAFTA or campaign tries Trump did against TPP. Um, and it's a target. They can, and they can blame that thing, um, which of course was implemented by other politicians as the cause of all of your problems, right? Um, the other thing, though, is that these trade agreements, like any sort of legislation, um, because they have to get through Congress, end up getting larded up with special interest favors, whether it's intellectual property rules or investor state dispute settlement or specific tariff carve outs for the sugar industry or whatever. Um, that again becomes less about really free trade, which is about simply letting people buy and sell, uh, uh, you know, from or to whomever. Um, it, it becomes much more about, um, this thing has these bad things and did this bad thing to you. Thus, you should oppose this thing. It's the embodiment of free trade. And, and so it leads to, I think, a lot of our, our current problem. Since we're just talking about free trade here, it's worth asking a question that I think that people often think of. Is it okay to trade with countries that exploit their workers, do not protect their workers, hurt the environment? Uh, give Basically, they have a comparative advantage by being less ethical could be the argument, which is a weird way to have a comparative advantage or maybe an undesirable way to have a comparative advantage. So is that something that we should be concerned with? Yeah. So there's a, I think a real problem with that is again, thinking about the alternative, right? So um, Planet Money did this awesome video a few years ago about how to make a t-shirt. And it was this, uh, I actually taught it in my trade class at Duke um, because it shows, I think quite clearly um, what the alternative to say low wage jobs in Bangladesh making t-shirts. And the alternative was subsistence farming or sex work, um, for, for young women in particular in, in this video case. And so the, when we, when we say we don't like the working conditions, we don't like the environmental conditions, um, the, the truth is that the alternative, say cutting to, to, to what is now there is likely going to be far worse. Um, and that is, includes on the environmental side. Um, you know, um, burning, um, biomass 
you they call it, for example, is far dirtier than burning fossil fuels. Um, and so, and and again, that's kind of you know the poorest countries in the world tend to be the dirtiest. So trade can help those countries develop. And, and as countries develop, they tend to have better labor rules. They tend to have and better just wages and, and working conditions. Um, and they tend to have better environmental policies. So, um, it's not, it's not the problem, of course, is that that's not a politician thing, right? You can't say, look, it's going to take 20 years, but eventually these countries are going to come along. Look at the, at the charts that we have. You know, it just doesn't work like that, right? Whereas again, you can point to say a factory collapse in Bangladesh and say, aha, our, our consumption, our greed did this, right? Now, but you actually at, talk to people who work in kind of global poverty and they say the absolute worst thing we could do for these folks is to cut off uh, trade with them. All three of us are lawyers, not economists. But one of the things that my economist friends tell me is that people respond to incentives. And I wonder if, I mean, the United States, say, is this huge potential trading partner for any other nation that we can pump a ton of money in. And so you're saying, you know, that the the alternative is worse, that these countries would, you know, the jobs that would be available if we weren't trading with them are subsistence farming or other things that aren't great, and that liberalizing trade improves their institutions. But isn't there another direction that that cause could run in terms of the incentives that if we as the United States were to say to other nations, look, we will not trade with you unless you behave ethically, unless you respect rights like human rights and property and the environment and all that. And when you get your act together, then we will trade with you. That would seem to provide a strong incentive to a lot of governments to shape up. Yeah, but it's a ten, it's a, it's essentially pulling up the ladder. I mean, the, the, the United States went through the same type of economic development in terms of labor rights and in the environmental rules that a lot of these developing countries are going through right now. And so it's really, I think, um, inappropriate. Uh, to say the least, for the United States to say, you need to have U.S. labor and environmental standards. Oh, and don't mind the fact that we didn't have those, you know, a hundred years ago when, when we were developing. The same really, you know, quite frankly, goes for intellectual property rules. You know, the United States was a massive IPR, intellectual property thief for a long time, in, especially in the industrial space. Even 30, 40 years ago, we were stealing French fashions and, uh, you know, uh, knocking them off in, in small factories in New York. And so, you know, to apply developed country standards to countries that are developing, um, it, it really is unfair. Uh, you know, it thwarts their ability, uh, to develop. Um, the, the other issue I think that's critical to note is that these well-intentioned policies um, often have very bad um, – uh, how do I put it? Uh, well, they have a lot of unintended consequences, first of all. But second, they can often be captured by less um, uh, ethical people. And so what you can see, for example, is labor rules in U.S. trade agreements being – uh, used by labor unions, not to actually improve labor conditions in Mexico, but just to block trade and to block competition with these countries. Um, and then the other side, I mentioned unintended consequences. 
it's really critical to think about, well, what is going to happen when you try to impose these types of, like you said, ethical constraints? I mean, there's actually, we have a, a great recent example in conflict minerals. So United States, uh, about 10 years ago in Dodd-Frank, uh, required multinational uh, corporations to map their supply chains to ensure that they weren't using conflict minerals in, the, in, the, in Congo, um, in the DRC. And what happened? Well, multinationals said, wow, this is really difficult. So we're just going to leave the DRC. And that actually made things worse uh, in terms of conflict and in terms of poverty in the Congo. So you again have to think beyond kind of, oh, we want these well-intentioned policies. You need to think about what's actually going to happen in, in the real world. And this really goes back to uh, Americans' inability to understand we live in a, a, at least in economic terms, a multipolar world. That, uh, there is, we are not the only player in town. And as the U.S.-China conflict showed, high tariffs and, and other things will not be very effective in changing behavior overall. You can maybe tweak some things at the margins here and there, but the reality is that um, you are going to cause a lot of pain for your own companies, your own consumers, and at the end of the day, um, not make things much better. And in fact, you might actually make things a lot worse, for example, by providing the Chinese government with, for an excuse for more economic intervention, for more state control, um, and, and uh, not to mention, of course, retaliation against U.S. exports and farmers and the rest. So if an individual American consumer goes to, uh, say, Walmart and looks at some products, shirts, T-shirts or something that they could buy, and one of them says made in, made in America, um, and they say, oh, buy American, that that's important. Uh, and so kind of like going down to the local uh, – uh, tr you know, food cart or, or a person selling produce on the side of the road. Like that's a, that's a person in your neighborhood, you know, who's selling something. Why ship it from wherever? So that person says, okay, look, $2 more for buy American. Uh, that's within my preferences. I'm willing to do that. Is there anything wrong with that, with someone making this decision to pay more for buying American or should people be like, you know, you know, maybe someone says for national security concerns, even I'm going to buy American, but, but, or should people be being like, no, I should be buying from Bangladesh. Yeah. I'm, well, look, I, I think people should buy from wherever, you know, if you, if you have a strong preference for an, a made in America label and you're willing to pay um, extra for it, look, that's go for it. Um, and contrary to popular belief, there still are, um, options out there for that because there is a, a market for, for, you know, patriotic consumption. Um, whether that is actually good for the U.S. economy is a totally different question. And I, and I think that what people don't think about when they spend, say, 10 extra bucks for a t-shirt is that they are denying other businesses access to that same 10 bucks. And that can boost uh, the economy and typically will boost the economy more. Why? Because you're funneling your money towards more productive enterprises, things that are going to be paying higher wages and have kind of more kind of viability in, in the market. Um, so when you start to kind of think about that 
when you start to think about, well, so I'm, I'm buying a t-shirt from Bangladesh. Um, that benefits me because I get a t-shirt. It benefits Bangladesh. That's, that's great. Um, or, you know, some workers in Bangladesh. Um, but then the money that I save, then I can then spend elsewhere or I can, I can actually save it. I can do all these, all these other things. And when you start kind of thinking about, where that savings can go, um, it, it really breaks down the kind of economic argument for, for doing it. Um, you know, look, if you want to do it for, for just general feel good reasons or whatever, totally fine. Um, look, some local produce is actually tastier, right? Um, totally fine. And we all have value judgments, um, that are perfectly acceptable in a free market economy. Whether, but the difference is that the government shouldn't be making that decision for us, um, particularly on economic grounds or, or national security grounds. That's where I think things really break down. It's not. Uh, better economically to to it, to force people to buy local, um, it it's actually worse. And again, if you're thinking about national security in the broader context, um, in terms of you know having a strong, vibrant, innovative economy, really the worst thing, uh, one of the worst things the government can do is uh, essentially create you know a Jones Act, which is a, a shipping law, probably one of the worst. Uh, uh, laws on the books in terms of economic policy, um, having a Jones Act for all other goods. And so the Jones Act, just for those listening, um, requires all U.S. ships traveling between U.S. ports uh, to be made in America and to be crewed by Americans and owned by Americans. So it's a very nationalistic law. Well, what has the Jones Act done to the U.S. shipping industry? Well, it's been around for more than 100 years, and we've seen a steady decline in the number of ships available to the merchant marine. We've seen a steady decline in the competitiveness of the industry. Uh, The U.S. shipbuilding industry about 50 plus years ago had a 20% price premium versus foreign competition. Now, U.S. ships are four to five times as expensive as foreign-made ships. Um, and again, the result is having a decrepit uh, domestic uh, shipping industry and, and a decrepit merchant marine. So if we did this for, for all of our, I mean, imagine doing this for all of our essential goods and then services and the rest, and you can see how what might sound good on paper, what might make us feel good is actually quite bad for the economy and for the very security objectives you're trying to achieve through, through these laws. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.